Welcome to our podcast at The Sugar Science. I'm Monica Wesley. I have the pleasure of speaking with Emra Altindish. He uh, is a PhD at Boston College in Boston, Massachusetts. And he recently was an author on a paper that's now out at BioArchives, uh, Parabacteriotis Distansonis uh, Enhances Type 1 Diabetes Autoimmunity Via Molecular Mimicry. This is a really interesting paper. Uh, welcome, Emra. Thank you for talking to us and look forward to sort of going through this paper with you. And um, could you just do a quick, uh, give us a, a quick background? What are, you know, what's your background and um, how did you uh, get to Boston College, et cetera? Sure, sure. Monica, first of all, thanks a lot for giving this opportunity to talk about our research on type 1 diabetes. I believe that this is a great resource, not only for scientists, but also for the patients who are interested in type 1 diabetes research. And I think that this is a great platform, so thanks to your work on sugar science. So I am originally from Turkey, and I'm actually an engineer, bioengineer, but during my third year, junior year, I took an immunology class from the medical school, and I fell in love in immunology. And because I always wanted to do things for the children, I wanted to become a vaccine researcher. So I worked with Bordetella pertussis during my master's degree at Middle East Technical University. So this is a pathogen that causes whooping cough in baby, mostly in babies, infants, children. And then during my PhD, I went to, for my PhD, I went to Italy. I had my PhD from Bologna University. But while I was working at Bologna University, I was also working at Novartis Vaccines as a scientist. So I stayed there for four years, worked on several pathogens that we do not have vaccines yet, including Staphylococcus aureus and Streptococcus agalactia. So these were, these, were, these were the work before my postdoc. So in 2011, I came to US, Boston, and I became a postdoc at Harvard Medical School in the McAllenos lab in the microbiology department. And I worked on two different projects on Vibrio cholera. This is the pathogen that causes cholera. Mm -hmm. And then in 2014, I became very interested in the microbiome research. And especially it's linked to the metabolic syndrome, obesity and diabetes. So I started a second postdoc at Justin Diabetes Center, which is affiliated with Harvard Medical School in Dr. C. C. Ronald Kahn's lab. So Dr. Kahn is really one of the giant names in the type 2 diabetes research and in general in the metabolism field. Um, So then I had this second postdoc and I will talk about what we did there I think later, but I worked on some microbiome projects and we discovered that viruses have insulin-like peptides, which we might talk later. And from 2018 to today, I have been an assistant professor here at Boston College. I, I, I started my group, and I'm also an adjunct faculty at Harvard Medical School at Justin Diabetes Center. You are very busy. We have been busy. Yeah, we have been busy, and things are going well. The first year being a PI is, was not easy, as you know, so now the things are much better in my third year. Well, that's great. I'm, uh, and you know, I, uh, I think let's talk a little bit about the paper. This was a really interesting paper that came out in bioarchives recently. And 
you know, you, why don't you walk us through it? Sure. So the question in the field, so this type one diabetes is one of the oldest diseases that we know. The, we, we have been writing from the uh, Egyptians, ancient Egyptians, Chinese uh, medicine from thousands of years ago, people knew it. And the name diabetes mellitus is a Greek name that was, I think, coined in 260s, around 260, so like 1,800 years ago. We know this disease, but we have no idea what causes it. And this is the main problem. If you do not know the cause, you will have no tools to prevent it. So yes. people are now working on curing it by either transplantation, several stem cell studies are going on, which are great, but my uh, main interest is to understand the cause. As you said before we started recording, this is a multifactorial disease. And it looks like there are several compartments, including genetics and environmental factors work together or work in a, way, in a different way for different individuals. And maybe there are different kinds of type 1 diabetes diseases, but all cause the uh, the attack of the T cells to in the to the beta cells. So, to understand the cause, and maybe also I can start with a story. So, my interest to the type one diabetes research. How did it start? So, as I told you, my mentor, Dr. Khan, is a giant name in type two diabetes research, but he has not worked on type one diabetes. But we have, we have these weekly meetings at Justin Diabetes Center, which we invite external speakers. Uh, we had Brian Five from University of Minnesota. He's a T-cell immunologist, and he gave a talk. And he, in this talk, I learned about the central role of insulin as an autoantigen in type 1 diabetes. I didn't know anything about type 1 diabetes until this talk. Hmm. So... But immediately when I heard that the insulin is one of the main targets of the T cells and B cells in the type 1 diabetes patients, I thought that because my background is in microbiology, I thought that there might be a microbe that has an insulin-like peptide infecting us, and this might stimulate an immune response to against this bacterial or viral insulin-like peptide, which also cross-reacts with our insulin, and this might trigger the disease. So I had this hypothesis in the seminar. I went upstairs to my office and started to do some bioinformatics work to identify microbial insulin. And indeed, we discovered that now, it was three when I first started in 2014, now we have six. Six different viruses have insulin-like molecules. And in my lab, one project is trying to characterize them and understand if they are linked to type 1 diabetes. This is going on. This so there's six, so there's, you, have, you have discovered six different viruses yes, that, that, sorry, six different viruses that basically have, um, you know, this, this sort of, uh, what do we call it, a mimetic? Yes, we call them viral insulin, IGF-1, like peptides, WILPs, but we can call them insulin mimetics. So this, is, this was very exciting, and we are still trying to understand if these viruses can infect humans, because we found the sequences of these viruses in human fecal samples, 
and also some studies suggest that they found the sequences in human blood. So now we are working on this. But the, part, the project that you are interested in, and we just put it in the, the preprint to bioarchives, is a related but different project. So insulin peptide has two different uh, chains, so B chain and A chain. And it is in total 51 amino acids. So the, the listeners might know what amino acids are. But yes, I hope amino so. Acids <laughs> peptides, peptides make the proteins. So it has two chains, in total 51 amino acids. And different regions of the insulin is a target for T cells. T cells are the cells that are, it has, a, has the central role in type 1 diabetes. And especially the region at the B chain from the ninth amino acid to 23rd is the main epitope for in humans and in the mice model that we use in our labs that's called non-obese diabetic mice or NOD mice. So I thought that there might be a microbe as a peptide that is very similar to, to insulin B923 peptide. I will call this epitope name insulin B923 in a, in a bacteria or virus. So I did a bioinformatics work and we identified several mimetics of this peptide. Then we synthesized them, chemically synthesized these peptides. And in collaboration with two groups, one, these are two great immunologist groups. One is William Kwok at Benaroya Institute, and the other is Emil Yunanue at Washington University. He is now in the, at the acknowledgments of this paper. So we tested if T cells that are specific the human T cells or the NOD mice T cells can be stimulated by this bacterial or viral mimics. Monica, is it clear until this point? Yes, I think it's pretty clear. Uh, and yeah. I think that most of our listeners are scientists, so I think they're following pretty okay. well. Okay, yeah, I, I, I just want to make, explain it if, the, if there are some patients who are listening that this was one. No, that's great. Also for younger you know, scientists, <clears throat> graduate students, people that may be interested in entering the field of diabetes, yeah. I think it's a great explanation. Yeah, so the... The name of this mechanism that caused by the T cell degeneration that they cannot distinguish if one peptide is self or non-self is called molecular mimicry. So I thought that the molecular mimicry mechanism might cause type 1 diabetes. And indeed, we tested 17 different microbial peptides. One of them coming from Parabacteroides distesonis, which all listeners probably have in their gut right now, had this peptide that was able to stimulate T cells that are isolated from human type 1 diabetes patients or NOD mice. So the, they, the cells were not able to distinguish if it is self or not. So, okay, so let's just back up for a second. So this, sure. you know, um, parabacteriotis, this um, bacteria is present in all healthy people or is it enriched in type 1 diabetics? Or is there, you know, what, what is the situation with its uh, amount in, in patients? So according to Teddy Group is the main group that is doing the environmental factor work, right, Teddy? So Teddy recently published a Nature paper in 2018 
and they had the the sample size was huge in terms of sample size this was the best study and they showed that parabacteroides genus not the distesonis but parabacteroides is the most uh, is is the bacteria that the genus that is mostly associated with type 1 diabetes patients so the association was very high not causality so this is a this is a this was a supportive data for us yeah secondly we in 2000 i think 14 or 15 diabetes study published a paper in cell and they checked the gut microbiome of children from Estonia, Finland, and Russia. And I would like to also emphasize the fact that the genetics background of these people are very similar. But Interesting. The, yeah, especially the Finnish Karelia and Russian Karelia, there's a boundary between these two, two different states, let's say, in, the, in two different countries. The rates of type 1 diabetes is six times less in Russia, side but higher on the Finland side. So they published this study. We downloaded the data and reanalyzed their data to see if we can find P. distesonis peptide in children. So they collected samples in the first three years of life. So this is the very important period of time when the gut microbiome develops. Yes. And we show that, interestingly, this peptide is never identified in children who will develop type 1 diabetes from age 0 to 1. Hmm. It is found in the controls, but it is never identified in the children who will develop type 1 diabetes. But from age 2 to 3 in Russia and Estonia, so we might think like a late exposure to this bacterial peptide, at two and three in all children who will develop diabetes headed in Russia and Estonia. In Finland, the healthy children headed, but none of the children who will develop type 1 diabetes headed until age three. That might suggest it comes later, even a, more, even a later uh, exposure, or there might be another mechanism. So, so that, that, that really falls into place with this whole idea of um, different timelines of development for different populations. Yes. So to test this, we took the bacterium in the lab and we oral gavaged the NOD mice every day for 30 days. The goal was to colonize these mice in the gut microbiota of the NOD mice using female and male mice. And we showed that, and female mice is the real model for type 1 diabetes. And we showed that the exposure to this bacterium after weaning at age four weeks accelerates, enhances the disease in, type, in, the, in the mice that received this. We also checked their pancreas, and we showed that the parabacteroides distesonis colonization in the gut also enhances the T-cell infiltration in the pancreatic islets, which correlates with the also enhancement of the disease. And we also collected the splenocytes from these mice, the main immune cells from the spleen, and we transferred them to another mice model called NOD skip mice, which doesn't have any adaptive immune system. They don't have the B cells or T cells, mature yeah. B cells or T cells. And we were able to also transfer the disease to the NOD skid mice, suggesting that PDIS 
stimulates an immune response, and then this immune response is sufficient to, to transfer the disease to the anodiskid mice. So what would, what would constitute an, um, you know, an elevation of this PDIS uh, in, in children? I mean, is, yeah. are you thinking along the lines of like maybe, you know, some kind of antibiotics or some kind of insult changes the profile of the microbiome so that there's an overgrowth of this PDIS and then maybe that that prompts the immune system or elicits this response? What, what, what kind of scenarios do you imagine? So gut microbiome is very dynamic and active and it might change by several factors, including diet, drugs, antibiotics, of course, are targeting the bacteria that will change, viral infections, the del delivery method, if the, if the, the babies are born uh, as a, uh, with, with certain, uh, uh, with the cesarean or the vaginal birth and uh, the breastfeeding duration, the diet that they have, all these factors are affecting the composition of the gut microbiome. I do not have the answer specifically for the parabacteroides dystesonis, but gut microbiome composition is affected by several different factors. And we need to, we will continue our research to better understand first the mechanism of this acceleration of the disease. And secondly, we will also do some more research to understand if there are environmental factors or genetic factors that might, because there is a new paper published in Nature Communications and uh, our common friend, Mark Atkinson is also one of the co-authors. They show that the genetics, so your image, so the if you ha if you have DQ8 or DR, so different MHC molecules. Yeah, MHC, HLA. Mm -hmm. Yes, they also determine the gut microbiota composition. So this is a paper, I think, 2019, Nature Communication. So, so many factors are affecting the gut microbiota composition. And I we do not claim that we identified... Uh, what causes type 1 diabetes, but I think that our study is very promising because this is the first, I think this is the first time that we identify the mechanism-based causal link between the gut microbiota and type 1 diabetes. The previous studies were great, Teddy, Diabimmune, they all provided a lot of data, but they just told us the differences in the microbiome compositions, but now this is time to go and understand the, if there are some metabolites, the products of the bacteria or bacterium or the viruses that are really causing this. And as you know, there are so many studies also going on for the enteroviruses, Coxsackie virus and several other viruses if they are related to type 1 diabetes. I believe that, and my also research program is quite environmental factor centric. I believe that the environmental factors play a huge role in type 1 diabetes onset because this is also the only way to understand the increasing incidence rates of the yeah. disease. There's been a, a huge increase since, uh, even since the 1970s in the incidence of type 1 diabetes. And even um, it seems that some of the new diagnoses are like, you know, three years old and under, which was a new uh, onset point. 
So it is, it is very interesting, this whole uh, hypothesis. There's that whole hypothesis of the um, cleanliness hypothesis, and there's the, the idea that some countries are more susceptible, some populations are more susceptible. And then when you know, other populations move into a certain country, that the, that the immigrant uh, populations now are more at risk for type 1. So it's such a complicated landscape. Yeah. Um, but I think that what you're doing is, is, you know, excellent in that you're, you know, t- sort of starting to chip away. There is almost an atlas now of the microbiome and, and what, and, and um, it's, you know, a residence in type 1 diabetes patients, like you said, at the Teddy study. But now your, your group and others are starting to chip away what that means, right? Yes. Yes, what this, this is a very important question. The diabetes study also had a mechanism that they showed that the, in 2000, I think, 14, 15 cell paper, which Alex Kostic, a friend of mine at Justin Diabetes Center, is a co-first author. In this paper, they also had a mechanism showing that the different bacterium has different LPS on their surface, and these LPSs are also regulating the immune cells in different ways. So it was also a very interesting study, and I'm, I hope they will follow up with this study. We need this kind of, I think, mechanism-based studies in the field to better understand this crosstalk between the microbiome, viruses, and the host immune cells. Where is the primary point of uh, contact for the immune system um, the enteric immune system and this microbiome. I mean, is it primarily in the uh, large intestine? And then, you know, what do you have got the pyre patches, you know, as the sort of the, where these, where the immune cells are going back to present what they find out in the world. Is that kind of the real region of interest? Yes and no. So yes, because God, small intestines and the colon is really our most important immune organ. So the, concent- the, the most of the immune cells are really concentrated because we are trying to control a huge population of microbiome, 1,000 species. One adult has, this, this was shocking when I have learned about this and I don't know how, how they measured it, but one adult has one to two kilograms of bacterium in their gut. So the nice. immune system has to be ready and prepared to fight and stop it in the, in the lumen, inside the intestines. So to do this, for instance, we, IgA's, immunoglobulin A, is produced in a huge way in the, in the gut. And another collaborator and friend, Noah Palm, at Yale University, he also published a study using these IgA's he, in IBD, in inflammatory bowel disease, this paper was published in Cell again in 2015, maybe, Noah Palm. So they, they were able to, and we also use this in a study that we are trying to publish now. It is also in bioarchives on celiac disease. They, use, they were able to sort bacteria based on the uh, IgA coating on their surface. And they had this hypothesis that if a bacterium in the gut is coated with IgA, highly coated, it's a pathogen. And in their mice model, they really showed that they were the, the, the bacterium that are targeted by the immune system were really uh, stimulating IBD in the mice model. So back to your question, 
yes, gut and small intestines is the first place, but uh, if your gut's, gut is not healthy in terms of it is a leaky gut, if the bacterial products can go in to your system, the metabolites or the LPS will be increased in the circulation. So then the immune system might be also alarmed by the and stimulated by this bacterial or viral or phage. We also, the microbiome field is very bacteria-centric. There are so many phages, which we have no idea about their link to type 1 diabetes or other autoimmune diseases. Anyways, so it might be a direct contact between the bacterium or the microbe and the immune system in the gut, but the bacterial or microbial products can go to the system, circulate, and still continue to, continue to trigger the immune system. So it, it is in the gut, but it might be also somewhere else. It's interesting. So I see, well, Mark Atkinson is on this bioarchives paper with you. And of course, he's, you know, uh, leading the charge for the NPOD program. So when, uh, has anyone looked in the NPOD samples to see um, what, uh, what is represented in those, if anything, in terms of LPS or metabolites, bacterial metabolites? Yeah, I, I'm not aware of this kind of study. And this this could be a very cool study to identify bacterial products in the islets of the type 1 diabetes patients and enriched ones in the type 1 diabetes patients that are not identified in the in the healthy matched individuals. It could be a very interesting study. And some, I'm also, for instance, you might remember that Coxsackie virus was identified in the pancreas of type 1 diabetes patients. And it was a, yeah. such an exciting moment for the researchers. I wonder if we can find any gut microbe or any bacterium in the, in the pancreas. So I am not aware of any study published this. Maybe I'm missing. But if we discover this, it will be, I think, extremely, extremely important. Good project, writing for a postdoc. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. <laughs> what me. about, oh, let me ask you, so in terms of these, the characterization of, you know, this uh, PDIS, as we're calling it, um, why, um, you know, I guess, what would be one way to, to stop this or to mitigate this effect that you can imagine? So we still need to do some experiments to follow up to be able to answer these questions because it looks like, according to our NOD mice experiments, late exposure enhances the disease, which fits with the children from Russia and Estonia. They were exposed to this virus when they were older than one, and they all develop the disease. So we need to find a way to expose the mice and now we are working on it. So we want this bacterium to be in their gut from the very beginning. So from the, from the birth, they will, the PDs will be a part of their normal gut microbiota. Now we are trying to find a way to do this because NOD mice do not have it. So we are all gavaging the, the parents to be able to see if the pups will have it. So we are working on it. My hypothesis is that early exposure might be protective yeah. and late exposure might be pathogenic. So it is related to immune tolerance uh, induction. Uh, so- It's a window we, then. Yes, so if we can 
show that this is the case. And then if we might some more studies in humans, because it is very difficult to test this in humans, but if we can, I'm now trying to reach to Teddy gut microbiome data. If we can also show that the children, the healthy children have this bacterium, but type one diabetes patients have it after age one, then I will have this hypothesis that if we give PDs to children before age one or expose them this peptide before age one, it might be protective or we need to find a way to target this bacterium. So the children who have a genetic risk for the disease, we will find a way to, it might be vaccination or ant antibiotics might make things even worse, but find a way specific, specifically targeting this bacterium in the gut to get rid of it from the gut microbiota might also be a way for prevention and protection. Yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> This also, I just spoke to um, Jessica Gibson the other day at Ariel Precision Therapeutics, and she was talking about developing genetics pre-screenings for newborns. Yeah. So this would identify, you know, that's what her company's uh, focused on. And I just think that would be such a powerful um, screening tool. I mean, if you could screen newborns to see that they have a fragility in some kind of their, their MHC, HLA groups, then you would maybe know who to target and who not to target because maybe some people don't, you know, obviously need this. And then can you um, comment on the new paper, uh, Bart Rope and others, a whole, ba uh, looks like a very large Dutch group, just yeah. came out with the fecal um, microbiotic transplantation halts progression of human new onset type one in a randomized control trial that just came out in gut. Um, and so this whole idea of, you know, mitigating mitigating uh, the effect of this uh, bacteria of the PDIS. You know, what about this whole idea of the fecal transplant? What do you think? What are your thoughts? So fecal, so FMTs, fecal material transfer have been has been used in close treatment difficult patients for a long time. So we have this experience. We we know that there are not so many side effects, which is good. And I think this is the first study that I'm aware of that FMD, FMT is used for type one diabetes patients. So they follow these patients, the, the sample size is small. I think it is 10 type one diabetes patients and I don't remember how many controls, probably 10. Yes, healthy donors are also 10. So the sample size is small. We need also larger studies, but it is the results are very promising. They follow these uh, patients for 12 months and in these 12 months, the type 1 diabetes, they were able to, uh, they were able to preserve the C-peptide levels in these in this, uh, patients by FMD. And the FMT also stops the decline of the insulin production for 12 months. So the results are very promising. I think a Chinese group, I was at the IDS meeting, I think it was last month, the IDS is the main diabetes, main type one diabetes immunology meeting. Yes, and there was a talk from a Chinese researcher. Also, they also did a similar study, and they had some preliminary good results. So I think that it is very promising because these are newly, I think, diagnosed patients, and if we can stop the decline of the C peptide levels or the insulin production 
it could be great. But I'm also I'm looking forward to seeing the follow-up studies for this study. It is it is extremely exciting. Well, just sort of a little bit of a teaser is uh, when I spoke to one of the authors uh, that uh, he said that the follow-up is even cooler. They can predict su success and failure by measuring in blood of patients before therapy, whether it will work or not with near perfection. So we know immune signatures that have or accomplished to preserve beta cell function. That's pretty exciting. And that's, yes. I'm, I'm not going to state who that was, but it was pretty, um, it's, this, this whole field is really ripe for inquiry. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, this is, you guys are chipping away at it, but if you can really establish an atlas of what's going on there, uh, it could also apply to other immune disorders. I mean, we know that yeah. type 1 diabetes often results in gut dysfunction, you know, celiac and other things. So you, you have to imagine that there's, there's going to be some, something at play in the gut um, that might uh, really impact the disease state. Uh, gut is a very important organ. So it is an endocrine organ. First of all, there are so many hormones that are related with also metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes, including GLP-1, GIP, and the pancreatic enzymes that are produced there. So it is an endocrine organ. It is also an immune organ that immune system is uh, educated by the bacteria and other microbes in the immune system. But also this crosstalk between brain and the gut is also extremely important now there are studies showing that the gut microbiota might feel might in in animal models they showed also my friend marion soto published a paper um, two years ago showing that by just changing the microbiota you are able to change the insulin sensitivity in the brain in the hypothalamus and it affects the behavior of the mice so in the, the mice that are on high fat diet are becoming obese and die insulin resistant and they have depression-like behaviors. But by changing their gut microbiota composition, they start to behave like the healthy mice. So this crosstalk between the brain and the gut is also very interesting. So I totally agree that this new field is interesting. One more study about the microbiome is came from uh, I, from Australia, from Melbourne University, or maybe I, do, I, but I know it is from Australia, about short-chain fatty acids. They fed mice with different diets that to increase the butyrate or different uh, short-chain fatty acid levels, and they were able to totally stop the disease onset in NOD mice. And now there are some clinical studies, I think, supported by JDRF, going on in humans to see if it will help. Yes, it is. It, that is a very interesting um, study. I had seen uh, some work around that, and I think there's also a, a group in South Africa that's replicating that. There's also, you know, just in terms of the nerve uh, or the autonomic nervous system, you know, Philippe Blancot in France and um, along with... Um, you know, others now have been, have shown that the, the, well, his paper was the pancreatic nerve electrostimulation inhibits recent onset autoimmune diabetes in mice. So yeah. 
that, you know, that's also at play, right? The autonomic nervous system, the vagal nerve input to the eyelids is um, starting to look also important. Yeah, I think that this is also something that I would like to emphasize. I'm, so NOD mice model is, gave us a, I think, great tool to be able to do our experiments in vivo. But it looks like we found so many different uh, treatments for the mice that doesn't work for humans. So we also need to think very carefully if our mice model works. So I couldn't publish any paper and I will not be able to without doing in vivo work in NOD mice. But I think that the field, we, we need to think about different animal models or if the NOD mice is really the best model to work because I think Mark Atkinson wrote a paper about this. Uh, there are maybe 500 different tools that prevents type 1 diabetes in NOD mice. And why we are excited about I'm, our I'm project. Funny, funny, not funny. <coughs> why we are excited about our project is that we find something that accelerates the disease. Not, so this is, I think, one of the very few studies that show that we can, we can stimulate and the immune system and enhance it. But we need to also think about other models, in vivo, ex vivo, or in vitro models to work in the field. This is a limitation. Yes, uh, the pancreas is so um, hidden and difficult to access in humans. So um, the reliance on tissues is very important. You yeah. know, the, the whole NOD program and the Canadian program and, um, and the European. Yeah, NPOD. And, They're and, so important. The human yeah. samples are so important. They are very important. So um, I do, but I do, it, it will be very interesting to see this, um, the new interaction of all three features. And I think you've mentioned, you know, the, the gut, the nervous system, the met metabolism um, controller of the islets, how they're all interplaying. But I think you also mentioned a little bit about viruses early. Did you want to comment a little bit about viral impact and, you know, your thoughts on, on what might be happening to drive the diagnosis of type one? and maybe whether or not bacterium could be involved? So we, we have also a project about this. We are using a new system called PEPS sequencing. And this is still very preliminary data, but we have been trying to compare the history of infection of the type one diabetes patients to history of infection to of healthy people. When I say history, we do not look at the records, but we are, taking the serum samples that Mark Atkinson again kindly uh, provided. And we are looking at the antibodies against different human viruses. I see. And there have been several groups, there have been several groups that show that some viruses might be linked. Enteroviruses, especially Coxsackie virus, might be one of the, one of the triggers of the autoimmune uh, mechanism in type 1 diabetes. Another study is that there are several, uh, in, in China, for instance, it is very, this is a very rare disease. In the US, there are 1.6 million type 1 diabetes patients. The population is around 320 million. And I think China has five-fold more people, but uh, they have less 
type one diabetes patients. I'm not, I don't exactly know the numbers, but it is a rare disease that some people think that some uh, enteroviruses might have a protective effect because they have more infections. It might have a protective effect in the autoimmune response. So we don't know. So viruses may, might have also a protective effect, but they might also have a causal pathogenic effect. So I think there's a lot to do. And as we already talked about, this is a multifactorial disease and there might be subtypes of diseases within type one diabetes and subtypes of trigger factors. So it doesn't have to be, have to be the same trigger for all type, one, all type one diabetes patients. Hopefully it will be just one, so we can just prevent it by identifying it. But it, might, it is probably much more complex than this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's curiouser and curiouser um, the more you learn about the disease and about the work that's being done. But I do think that you know, for young scientists, it's a really fertile place to go. Um, yeah. The tools now are, you know, you've got RNA-seq and single-cell RNA-seq, and you've got a lot of really robust tools now to begin um, a, approaching this problem. So uh, is there any, uh, you know, are you, do you have students in your laboratory? Yes, I, we, we have like 10 undergrad students in the lab, two grad students rotating now and two postdocs, a third postdoc is coming. So this is a medium-sized lab now. And the, some of the students, undergrad students, joined my lab because they have autoimmune diseases in their families or type 1 diabetes. And they are really curious and trying to understand. So I think and they are working on this project. They are not working. They are specifically working on the autoimmune disease projects. Yeah. No, there's a lot of people that are highly motivated in the field that have personal connection to the disease because, as we know, it's, um, you know, it's a chronic disease with no cure and it has a high level of maintenance. So I think that people are motivated to really, you know, um, find out more if they're really affected by it. I really thank you so much, Emra. This was fantastic. Um, I encourage people to reach out to you if they have questions, young scientists want to learn more about participating in this realm. And um, I, I so appreciate your time with us. Uh, and I hope this inspires other young scientists to, to get involved at this, um, in this realm of research. I have one more final comment, if, you, if it's okay, Monica. Yes. So the insulin was discovered in 1921 by Dr. Best, Banting, uh, McLeod, uh, and colleague. Uh, so the Toronto team discovered them 100 years ago. Yeah. And their goal was to make it free for any type 1 diabetes patient in the world. And they didn't want to have the patent of the insulin and now in the U.S., type 1 diabetes patients are dying because they cannot afford insulin. Yes. So the scientists did what they needed to do 100 years ago. But there are still Americans and people in the world who cannot reach to this very expensive drug, uh, the, the molecule in the U.S. It is not difficult to produce. The yeah. companies have been doing it since 1981. And I think it's a shame 
for us that it is still so expensive and some type 1 diabetes patients are dying because they cannot afford insulin in the US. It is over $200 per vial in the US and it is just $20 in Canada. There's just border between us. And I think that this is something that we scientists have to talk more and American Diabetes Association has a campaign for affordable insulin, I would also encourage anyone to go to their website and sign, because I think it is a right to have your insulin if you are a type one diabetes patient, it shouldn't be a privilege. Yes, well, thank you for commenting on that and, and highlighting it because that's, the, um, that's some of the reality and it's, it's, uh, it, it does need to change, <clears throat> perhaps with a new um, influx in our current um you know government maybe we'll yeah. have some changes so let's uh, cross our fingers for that because i think uh, it's needed it's definitely needed yes thank you so much thank you again for being such a uh, you know uh, a, an excellent scientist and a really great humanitarian uh for the cause thank you very much.